Children's Church head on out? Well, adults, you had your chance. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> All right, raise your hand if you've ever been in conflict. If you haven't, I, we need to have coffee. Um, one of the first things they teach you in any sort of conflict management course, conflict resolution, is that the issue is rarely the issue. Have you heard that? Okay, the issue is rarely the issue, but that goes beyond just conflict. That goes just to life in general. Uh, if somebody goes to the chiropractor with a screaming headache that just won't quit, if it's a good chiropractor, they won't just focus on the head, right? They'll, they'll look at the neck, they'll look at the shoulders, they'll look at ribs that are out of place, because a good chiropractor knows that the issue is rarely the issue. Tracking with me? Another example? Uh, my son, JJ, uh, bought a pickup off of uh, Zach. Zach, if you're watching... Pickup works great. Over the summer, um, we needed to put snow tires on it, so we did. And when we left the tire shop, there was some shaking in the wheel. Now, yeah, all y'all like, oh, right? I'm a worst-case scenario thinker, so all of a sudden, I'm driving my son's pickup, and there's, got a, there's a crack in the axle, and it's about to explode, and it's going to cause a massive accident. And if somehow we can make it back to the tire shop, it's going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars to fix. Well, we just need to put more air in the tires. It's amazing what the proper PSI will do, and I did not take it back to the shop to find that out. I looked myself, okay? But the issue wasn't the issue. Uh, another one? Okay. Uh, well, work, workplace conflict, okay? If it seems like your coworker is out to get you and trying to get you to lose your job, it's probably not the case. It's probably just, you know, a difference of a, somebody at gmail.con versus at gmail.com, and that's why the communication is not going through. The issue is not the issue. Nathan got it. Okay, everybody else that didn't, I'll give you one that you do get. Um, you ever been around a kid that's throwing a temper tantrum? <laughs> yeah, everybody raised their hand on that one. That's right. Whether they are a toddler or a seven-year-old um, or a four <laughs> or a 45-year-old, come Thanksgiving, you're going to get a temper tantrum because the peas are touching the mashed potatoes. Right? But you know the issue is not the issue. I mean, the kid's not out to hate you forever and make your life miserable. Parents, I hope you know that. The issue is that this has just been a crazy busy week, and the naps have been inconsistent, and oh, by the way, the kid is growing. The issue is not the issue. Tracking with me? So, so far, we're gonna see, we'll see if I can lose you by the end of this. Oh, my goodness. Grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 7. Uh, we are going to continue our sermon series that we're calling Offensive Christianity, Who's In, Who's Out. And we're going to see that this passage that we look at today that we most often think we know the issue is not really the issue. Okay? Let's pray. Jesus, anytime we open your story to us, we have the opportunity to put ourselves in the story. And I pray you'd help us do that today. Give us ears to hear, hearts that are ready to listen, and, uh, and minds that can engage. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So on April 2nd, you guys have heard this before, of uh, 2014, Rachel Held Evans sent a tweet out on her social media Twitter account that said, what makes the gospel offensive is not who it keeps out, but who it keeps in. Not who it keeps out, but who it lets in, even me, she says. Now this phrase has helped shape this sermon series that we've been in, and what we're doing is taking a nice, long, slow walk, looking at the life story of Jesus and looking specifically at who he lets in. By lets in, I mean who he engages, who he loves on, who he interacts with, who he invites into his kingdom now. We have covered a lot in the first six chapters, and some of you are thinking, no kidding, you've been talking about this for ten weeks and we're only six chapters in? We're going to pause next week. We are. And then we'll jump back into it the next year. The last couple of weeks, we've noticed that Jesus welcomes in those who are at the end of the rope, those who might be a little bit off their rocker, and he welcomes in the crowds. Today, we jump into Mark chapter 7, and we are reminded that in all of this welcoming, and all of this inviting, Jesus has uh, he's made a name for himself, and he's upset some people. And he's upset them so much that they want to, uh, they want to get rid of him. It's a nice way to put it. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. They were mad at Jesus. The religious elite were mad at Jesus because of all the people he was inviting in and not keeping out. Okay? So we're going to see more of that. In Mark chapter 7, it starts off with a scouting party coming from Jerusalem with the religious elite, these people again being at odds with Jesus. And I'm going to read the first 23 verses so you can follow along in your Bibles or just listen. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, so if it's slightly different than yours, that's why. Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 1. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. Now, they noticed that some of the disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as the ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked Jesus, Why don't your your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. And Jesus replied, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own traditions. Then Jesus said, You skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, can't help you. For what I vowed to give to God, I would have given to you. Now in this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear, and he said, All of you listen and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. 
And then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what, the, what he meant by the parable that he had just used. Ah, don't you understand either, he asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart. Food doesn't go in, well, there it is. Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. Jesus speaks the truth. By saying this, Jesus declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. From within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defiles you. Now, on the surface, it seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Seems like a text about inner purity versus outer purity. And, I mean... So many of us have heard sermons on that, right? The Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, they want to know why Jesus' disciples don't follow the old customs, the old rituals about hand-washing, and I can't blame them. All right, we've had hand-rushing principles and rituals in our society for years and years and years. No reputable restaurant will have their cooks or their servers cook or serve without first going through a, a pretty, you know, ritualistic hand-rushing ceremony. Any doctor, if you go into the doctor's room, right, they'll come in, they'll wash their hand, they'll treat you, they'll wash their hands, and then they'll leave. Yeah? And with COVID the last couple of years, we've got hand-washing stations, we now have hand sanitizers screwed to all the studs in every wall that we have. We've got signs in the bathrooms that say, wash your hands before you leave. But we've had those signs in there for decades, so I can't blame the, the Pharisees, right? I mean, they knew how to wash their hands before the National Health Association told us how to wash our hands. Good for them. They've been practicing that for generations upon generations. So they go to Jesus and say, hey, what's the deal? Your, your, your disciples aren't washing their hands like we do. And it makes sense. And a simple response from Jesus would have sufficed. Sorry, fellas. I didn't realize my boys weren't washing and rinsing twice before they ate. I'll talk to them. That would have been enough. Oh, but Jesus lambasts them. Like, that's a kind way of putting it. Mark 7, verse 6 and 8, you hypocrites. Where did that come from? Right? Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. You ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed? I mean, all they wanted to know was why they didn't use antibacterial soap. That's what they were asking. Hypocrites. Strong language. Worship is a farce. I mean, seems like a little bit of a cheap shot. And then he goes on to tell a story about nothing at all related to hand washing. The issue isn't the issue, but we're going to get there. After that rant about uh, parents and financially supporting them, Jesus thankfully kind of returns to the, to the question they asked, you know, without ever addressing their need to sing the happy birthday song twice through when they're washing, he talks about what goes into the body, what makes a person clean versus unclean. I mean, again, on the surface, this is a classic inner purity versus outer purity type of text. You ever heard a sermon preached with that focus? 
Uh-huh. Have I ever preached a sermon with that focus? Absolutely. If we take this, this response from Jesus and just look at the first 23 verses and stick with that, that's a perfectly legitimate sermon out of this text. But if we take it from the entire chapter, we realize, oh, wait, the issue Jesus is addressing isn't really the issue. The issue he's addressing isn't warm water, cold water, isn't antibacterial versus pump versus bar soap. He's addressing who's in and who's out. He's addressing who's in and who is out. Jesus' response makes that clear. So follow me for a little bit as we go on a, a historical detour. Since the time God met the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, after he had freed them from their Egyptian slavery and he gave them the law, the Jews had been very intentionally trying to follow the law that God gave them. They'd been doing all they could to follow every rule to a T. They were trying to do what God told them to do. They were trying to be holy because God was holy. That's what God told them to do. Now, to understand more of what that means, the word holy in the Hebrew means to be set apart. Okay, it means to be set apart. That means who, what, and how you are needs to look different than who, what, and how they are. And for generations upon generations, the most visible way that this was done was through specific food laws. And these food laws abound in the Old Testament. In fact, I'd like to read you all 47 verses of Leviticus chapter 11. Oh, let me get there. This is God's directions to Moses at the foot of the Mount Sinai to the Israelites concerning foods that are clean and unclean. Just bear with me. Okay, Leviticus chapter 11, verses starting in 1, and there's 47 verses in this chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Of all the land animals, these are the ones that you may use. I'll give you the cliff note version. Randy's saying, please give us the cliff note version. He says, talks about the beasts of the field, what you can't eat, what you can't eat. Talks about the, the food in the sea, what you can't eat, what you can't eat. Talks about the birds in the air, what you can't eat, what you can't eat. Getting it? Talks about the insects, which you can eat, what you can't eat. Uh, reiterates from before, those with four paws, what you can't eat, can't eat. And swarming things, what you can eat and can't eat. He says, do eat this, don't eat that, do eat this, do eat that. And then he gets to the heart of the matter in the very last couple of verses. Verse 44, God says, For I am the Lord your God. You must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. For I, the Lord, am the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt that I might be your God, and therefore you must be holy because I am holy. You must be set apart because I am set apart. You must be different you are mine. I am yours. Be set apart. This is what the Israelites heard. This is what they were taught. This is what they practiced for years and years and years. And it's good because that's what God was wanting them to do. God had said this. And then Jesus came along. And he starts interacting with the wrong people at the wrong times and in the wrong ways. And the religious folk come from Jerusalem and they say, hey, here's our example, hand washing. But Jesus, we're really struggling with the line in the sand of how do you tell who's in and who's out? That's essentially what they were coming to find out. Jesus, you can't mess with this because this is how we've been able to tell how we're holy and they are not for generations upon generations and generations. And, and Jesus 
calls the crowds. He had been lambasting the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and then he calls the crowds and says, hey, listen carefully in verse 14 and 15. Try to understand this. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes from your heart. The foot of Mount Sinai, there had been doors that were closed to those outside. Jesus was opening the doors to let them back in. And he wasn't knocking God's rules. He wasn't saying disregard them. I mean, God had said the things he said. He said, don't eat bacon. He said, don't eat lobster. He said, don't eat geckos. And I agree with the last one. Okay, I don't know about the first two. Jesus wasn't tossing these things out. But he was inviting in the outsider. He was inviting in those that had been set apart. And this all goes back even further than the foot of Mount Sinai. It goes back to Abraham, to when Abraham was called by God. This is the first time God said, hey, there's going to be an in and there's going to be an out. Your family's going to be in. And listen to what God says. He said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I'll show you. You guys know this text? I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to everyone else. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. All the families of the earth. You ever wonder why at the end of every sermon uh, we do the benediction and it's like, so that your ways would be known on all the earth? It ties back to this. Jesus is reminding the Pharisees as they're coming complaining about hand washing that, wait, the original in and out was meant so that everybody that's out could be in. Make sense? Now, perhaps you're wondering, James, how in the world do you get that from these first 23 verses? I don't see anything about Leviticus in here. I don't see anything about Abraham. I don't either. But I see this lived out in the rest of this chapter. The issue isn't the issue. And Jesus lives out what he just taught in the next two stories. Mark 7, verse 24. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, First, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. A good answer, Jesus said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when when she arrived, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. Great text, right? Great sermon. In fact, I think I preached a sermon on these seven verses sometime in the last year and a half, but I can't remember when. So bear with me. Those that are newer to First Church, you haven't heard it yet. Those that have been here the last year and a half, you have. So just listen again. All right? It's going to be a lot shorter than the first time. This woman in the story is very blatantly out. She's on the outside, okay? How many strikes in baseball tell you're out? Three. Good. Not a trick question, okay? First swing, she's a woman. Yeah, okay, second swing. She's a Gentile. 
third swing. She is a Gentile born in Syria, Phoenicia. Now, if we, that, that doesn't mean much to us, but way back when, when Joshua divvied up the land, when the Israelites conquered it and gave it to the different tribes, this area in Syria, Phoenicia, was given to the tribe in Asher. You can check me on that, uh, Joshua 19. But the Israelites, the tribe of Asher, could not get them out. So there had been animosity between those living in Syria, Phoenicia, and the Jews for that many years ever since. So um, she's a woman, she's a Gentile, she's from a people group who the Jews hadn't liked for a long time, right? That's strike one, strike two. That's a foul tip, because the fourth thing that she has against her is she wasn't part of Jesus' original mission. Now hear me on this. His original mission, don't throw anything at me. Jesus' statement about not feeding his own family, or about feeding his own family the Jews first, was not an exclusive statement. It was not a separatist statement. It was a reminder to himself, to his disciples, and to this woman of what God told him to do first. And that first was go to God's chosen people, the people who have been in, and tell them you are the Messiah. You are the long-promised one that I've said would come. That was this first mission, and Jesus needed to remind those around him that that's what he came to do first. Now, the people didn't listen, so he had other parts of his mission. So don't send me the email that says, wait, Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost and all the other things that Jesus came to say, because I know that. But this was... Mission number one, go and tell my people that you are the Messiah. So Jesus says, hey, can't help you, you dog. Ow. That's rude. I mean, even I know that. Calls her a dog. The issue isn't always the issue, right? If the front half of Mark 7 is about in versus out, it's about Jesus opening the doors wide to people who have been out so that they can come in. Then we've got to know there's more to this comment than we can see. All right, the Greeks and the Jews, they used the term dog derogatorily. Then uh, the Jews used it. They meant it as a mangy mutt that roams the streets, that was without a home, without a purpose, a, vag- a vagabond and a vagrant. And the Jews had been using the term dog kind of as a swear word for a lot of years. Isaiah chapter 56, the prophet Isaiah says, like greedy dogs, they are never satisfied. Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus references dogs there too. He said, don't give the sacred to the dogs. Kind of fits with our passage today. The Apostle Paul, greatest church planner and missionary to ever live, in his letter to the church in Philippi says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil. And when one of Jesus' best friends was finishing up the letter we call Revelation, like six verses before the end of the Bible, so all the important things are going to be said right there, he also mentions dogs. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. Jesus calls the woman a dog, and on the surface, that looks really bad, but the issue's not the issue. If you remember the sermon that I can't remember when I preached the sermon, Um, the term that Jesus uses for dog is not the usual derogatory term. It's the diminutive term, which means it's a playful term. It means a small dog or a house dog, a dog you will put on your lap. And when Jesus says this, there's a playful tone that we don't see in the English. There's a teasing type tone that's in the Greek. Jesus left the door open for this woman by his response. He said, first... 
I must feed the children. What comes after first? Second, and then? And then? And so on and so forth. So Jesus didn't say first and only. He said first, and the woman caught on. She saw the, the, the sparkle in his eye. She heard the playfulness in his tone, and she, she banters back. And guess what happens? Jesus invites her in. He says, let me, let me let you experience the kingdom now. Your daughter's well. Go home. The original audience that Mark would have been writing to, they would have heard that story. They would have taken it in conjunction with the first half of Mark 7, and they would have realized Mark is saying Jesus is letting in those that have been out. Jesus' response to the issue of the woman wasn't the issue. Dog wasn't the issue. Hand washing isn't the issue. It's who's in and who's out. That's the issue Jesus is addressing. Not only did he teach this to the religious folk, he lived it out with the woman from Syrio-Phoenicia. And he lives it out in the last story in this chapter also, starting in verse 31. Jesus left Tyre and went back up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led them away, led him away from the crowd so that they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears. Then, spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, and he sighed and said this Hebrew word that I can't pronounce, but everybody say it with me, <laughs> But you got to say it with like a deep groan. I... It means be opened is what it means. Now, instantly, the man could hear perfectly. His tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. And Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone. <laughs> but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and give speech to those who cannot speak. All right, look down. In this story, what geography, what geographical land is Jesus in? Gentile. Somebody say it out loud. Gentile. Gentile, good, thank you. That was genius, fantastic, well done. That's, that's where he's at. But what specific neighborhood is he in? What suburb does he end up at? Last part of verse 31. Ten towns. Thank you. Ten Towns. Okay, first, yes, he's still in Galilee. Now, one scholar actually thinks that, judging by the route he took, because if you look at the map, that's actually kind of one of these, he thinks that Jesus actually wandered around for about eight months. I'm not sure how he knows that, but it makes sense if Jesus wanted a little bit of peace and quiet before he went back to the calm of his own people. All right, and then you look, and it's the, the, he ends up in the region of the Ten Towns. Where have we heard that before? Say again. The Decapolis, yeah, the, the Ten Towns. This was in chapter 5. Jesus healed a demoniac in a graveyard, and the guy wanted to go with him, and Jesus says, no, you can't go with me. Go and tell everybody uh, of what I have done for you. And where did this guy go and tell everybody what Jesus had done for him? To the Ten Towns. Randy, did you say Ten Towns? To the Ten Towns. What? Um, look at the change. In Mark chapter 5, these people are begging Jesus to leave. But then this, this, this first missionary of the Gentiles goes to the ten towns, tells them all that Jesus has said and done, and we get to this passage, and they're begging Jesus to stay. 
Not only that, they're bringing him people who need help. They bring him a man who couldn't hear. They bring him a man who, in Mark's language, his tongue was tied in knots. This was a man who, if he was back in Jewish territory, would have been an outsider, would have been an outcast, because with those conditions, it means you're sinning, which means you're not living set apart. We've talked about that, that that's not actually what somebody being sick actually means. But he would have been out. And Jesus, once again, emphasizes the point that he made in the front half of verse 7 to the religious leaders. He welcomes in, and he does so gently and with dignity. All right, This deaf man couldn't talk. He could see people talking. He couldn't respond back. It must have been a frustrating life that he lived. And Jesus pulls him away from everybody and gives him the dignity of privacy. And then he welcomes him into his kingdom now. I just think that's beautiful. But I had issues with this text. Do you look at Jesus' healing tactic? Verse 33. Seriously, I'm going to listen to this. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. That's nice. That's healing with dignity. He put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat on his own fingers and he touched the man's tongue. You can't see it, but I have nasty written right here in my Bible. I take issue with that. I mean, think about it. Jesus stuck his fingers in the guy's ear. He pulled him out. He spat on him. And then he put the ear cheese-crusted fingers on the man's tongue. Oh! But don't forget the issue isn't the issue. The author, Mark, is making this clear to everybody who's listening to. He's saying, hey, I'm willing as Jesus. I'm able as Jesus. I desire as Jesus to welcome in the outsider. And as we look at this chapter from its entirety, I think we can see that fairly clearly. Now listen, over the last 10 weeks, I've hinted around that Jesus welcomes the outsider. Today I'm saying it, it's bold, it's underlined. Jesus welcomes the outsider. He welcomes the outsider. I fully believe that even still to this day, he will welcome, he will invite, he will engage with those who oftentimes the church draws a line in the sand and says, you can't come in because you don't look, think, act, talk like us. We're over here, you're over there. I think Jesus extends a hand to them. I think Jesus would welcome them. And if Mark 7 hasn't forced us to do a little rethinking, a little soul-searching, then perhaps we're still stuck on the issue being the issue. I'm not going to ask you to name them, but think about the issues that you've grown up, that your parents taught you, that your grandparents taught you, that, that you've heard in Sunday school. You know, they've, they've said, if, if somebody lives like this, thinks like this, talks like this, does this, then they're out. Think of that. I'm not going to name them because we know them. We know them. Jesus reaches his hand across this line in the sand. Jesus steps across the line in the sand and says, you know what? I want to invite you in to relationship with me. Let's not be stuck on the issue being the issue. Let's realize the issue isn't the issue because what Jesus just said and did shows that. Okay? So this week... As you go about the busyness of your life, because you're going to go to the store last minute, you're going to drive by people that you see that you don't recognize, it's going to be chaos. This week, look for those that are outside. Look for those that you know the church hasn't traditionally welcomed in. They don't live like, act like, think like you. They don't follow our long-standing rituals and rules. 
as you see them, ask yourself this question. If Jesus were me, not if Jesus were here, but if Jesus were me, how would he act? How would he treat them? Would he invite them in or would he keep them out? And as you see them, ask the Spirit of God that lives in you and that lives in me what response he wants for you to do with those people. Will you do that with me this week? Let's pray. God, we've been through a lot of this story in Mark, almost half of it. And over and over and over again, I keep being reminded of the people you let in. And oftentimes, it makes me squirm a bit. It makes me uncomfortable. But it reminds me of your heart, of your desire to see people in relationship with you. God, I realize that not everybody who you welcome in accepts the invitation. I know that. But I want to be reminded that just like Jesus, to reach my hand across the line in the sand and say, hey, Jesus wants you here. You are welcome here. God, help me. Help everyone that's sitting in this room. Help everybody who's watching online. Give them opportunity of at least one person who you can nudge and remind them that you have just as big a heart for them as you do for us. And as we do that, Lord, may we be thankful. I ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.